Welcome to episode 13 of that year 11 human bio thing and in this episode we will be looking at the reproductive cycles and fertilization and I am back outside so you are going to hear some cars going past but I hope that won't bother you too much. Now the ovarian cycle and the menstrual cycle are obviously linked in the sense that they occur at the same time. The ovarian cycle is this circuit or a series of events that takes place within the ovaries, whereas the menstrual cycle is really referring to the changes that occur within the endometrium, the changes that occur within the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium. And so we'll be looking at those two processes. And I may need to cross over sometimes through the language. I'll try and talk about them separately and then talk about them in a combined way. Interestingly, a female is born with all the eggs that she'll ever produce in her lifetime. This differs from males because they can produce sperm until the day they die. Um, but a female cannot release those eggs or start to release those uh, um, eggs or ova until they, go, they become mature. And so what has to happen is the follicles that surround the ova need to be matured. Now this first starts happening in when uh, a female matures sexually and she therefore is going through a period of time known as puberty. And what will happen is a hormone will be released called follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. Now follicle stimulating hormone, if you're writing it in, an, extent, uh, in a, an exam, in an extended response, first of all write it in full and then in brackets put capital F, capital S, capital H. And from then on in your extended response you can just write FSH. If you got it in a short answered question, my suggestion would be to write it out in full because it might be say something like name the hormone that's involved in causing the uh, follicle to mature. Once the follicle is fully mature, we call it the graphene follicle. Some people would still refer to it as the mature follicle. I call, I call it the graphene follicle. And this usually takes 10 to 14 days to reach full maturity from its starting point. And uh, then what happens is at ovulation, that ovum is released. Now, the remainder, the shell, if you like, of the follicle, which is left in the ovary, begins to degenerate. And in its degeneration, it produces another hormone called progesterone. It actually produces some estrogen as well, but we'll, we'll come on to that. But it, it definitely it produces, but well, it actually produces both. And it's almost like squeezing out a sponge. So that, and we now call it the corpus luteum. Corpus luteum is Latin for yellow body because that's what it looks like. And once it's completely um, started to disintegrate or once it's begin fully degenerated, then it forms a mass fibrous mass of scar tissue, which we call the corpus albicans. And that means white body. And so in that way, that's how the ovarian cycle works. At the same time as the ovarian cycle is occurring, which is 28 days long, so too is the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle in a regular cycle, as with the ovarian cycle, is 28 days in length. Now, for some women, they don't have a regular cycle, so it can be three weeks, it could be five weeks. And because of that, it means that the time of ovulation, which is the most obvious time that the egg can be fertilized because it's been released, ovulation being on day 14 of the cycle, then what will happen is that the fertile window is reduced. That's the time in which a female can become pregnant. And if it's an irregular cycle, it's difficult to predict. Anyway, returning to the menstrual cycle, if we just start with the fact that the menstrual cycle begins with menstruation, 
Menstruation causes the uh, breakdown of the inner lining of the uterus, which is known as the endometrium, and this causes the blood to pass out of the vagina, or some blood actually goes into the blood spaces in the abdominal cavity or abdomen. And this marks the start of the menstrual cycle. And then what will happen is the wall of the uterus will begin to be built up again. Now, this occurs because follicle-stimulating hormone has been released. This causes the maturation, development and maturation of the primary follicle, which forms the graphene follicle when it's fully mature. And during that time, the ovaries, and the, therefore the, graph, the primary follicle, begin to release estrogen. Now, estrogen is a very significant gonadotrophic hormone. Gonadotrophic means it's a hormone that affects the um, gonads, and so gonadotrophic hormone, estrogen also actually develops the female's secondary sexual characteristics as well as the female characteristics in the first instance, and we'll come back to that later on. But in this case, what happens is you get the gradual building up of the inner lining of the uterus wall, which becomes thicker, if you like. And once the corpus luteum has released its egg on day 14, this occurs because the ovarian follicle, the release of estrogen or the increase in estrogen levels stimulates uh, the pituitary gland to release a, sec and a third gonadotrophic hormone. And that third gonadotrophic hormone is luteinizing hormone. So luteinizing hormone stimulates the release of the egg when it's mature. Now, when the corpus luteum begins to break down, because the egg has now been released on day 14 of the cycle, in a regular cycle, what will happen is, it's, as I said, it's a bit like a, um, the corpus luteum is now having all the remaining hormone within it squeezed out. And so it releases significantly the fourth gonadotropic hormone, progesterone. So progesterone then maintains, it doesn't build up, it maintains the uterine lining. And the purpose of that is that should the egg be fertilized, that egg can be, the zygote or the blastocyst as it becomes, can implant into the wall of the uh, uterus, in other words, into the lining of the uterus, the endometrium. Now, if that doesn't occur, well, because the corpus luteum is degenerating, then the levels of progesterone are going to decrease. It should be mentioned at this point that the corpus luteum also continues to release some estrogen. So it's actually both estrogen and progesterone that are being released. Now, estrogen and progesterone also have a negative feedback effect on follicle-stimulating hormone. So what that means is they both inhibit follicle-stimulating hormone and that effectively switches off follicle-stimulating hormone. As a result of that, you actually get to the breakdown of the inner lining and the cycle has to start again. And you can see, therefore, why menstruation occurs. So to follow that through in terms of hormonal cycles, follicle-stimulating hormone causes the maturation of the primary follicle. The primary follicle, which is found in the ovaries, causes the release of estrogen. The increase in estrogen in the blood stimulates the pituitary gland to release luteinizing hormone. The luteinizing hormone stimulates ovulation on day 14 of the cycle, which causes progesterone to be released. Don't forget, estrogen is still being released, though. And so you actually have both. And progesterone and estrogen combined will cause the inhi will inhibit follicle-stimulating hormone. So then if the egg is not fertilized, the lining of the uterus will break down and menstruation will begin again. 
Men and women are actually of the same species. Hard to believe at times, I know. But basically, males also produce the same hormones that females do from the pituitary gland. So males produce follicle-stimulating hormone, but obviously it has a slightly different job. It doesn't affect the ovaries because men tend not to have ovaries. What they have instead is seminiferous tubules. And this, therefore, follicle-stimulating hormone actually stimulates the production or stimulates um, spermatogenesis. Luteinizing hormone is also produced from the pituitary gland, as I stated earlier, for females. In this case, it's sometimes known as interstitial cell stimulating hormone. Now, in the seminiferous um, tubules, you actually have small cells known as interstitial cells, and from them is secreted a hormone as a result of being stimulated by luteinizing hormone called testosterone. And testosterone is known as the male hormone, I suppose, and it has three main roles. First of all, it develops um, the immature sperm cells. Secondly, it maintains the male reproductive organs. And thirdly, it causes the, um, the onset of puberty. In other words, it causes the secondary sexual characteristics to occur. Now, the sign of going through puberty or the point onset of puberty is sperm production in males and um, eggs being released or the menstruation in females, the menage being the first one. And what happens is that males and females develop these secondary sexual characteristics. The first, the primary sexual characteristics are obviously male and female. And in this situation, what will happen in males is that their voice will deepen because their uh, larynx drops and forms an Adam, Adam's apple. And so that's very unfair on them because their voice goes up and down like, uh, for a while and um, girls find that incredibly funny. They become more muscular. They develop hair everywhere and uh, they grow facial hair, for example, and uh, basically they're the main characteristics that they develop. Um, they also have what we call pubic hair. Now, I did see once in a test public hair. It should never be public. In females, females' hips widen. This is highly important for childbearing. Uh, they develop pubic hair as well. The breasts develop, and we'll come on to that because that's obviously important in terms of suckling the young. And... Uh, they're the main changes that occur in female, and obviously the menstrual cycle begins. In order to produce a new individual from an existing individual, which is what reproduction is, sexual intercourse needs to occur. Now, in this situation, the male penis needs to become erect. This occurs because if he is sexually aroused, blood enters, or more blood enters the penis than leaves, causing the penis the blood spaces in the penis to fill up with blood and the erectile tissue causes the penis to become erect. The penis is then inserted into the vagina. Now it is important that the female is sexually aroused as well, otherwise this will not be a pleasant experience for her. And just although we're talking biologically at this point, it is important that if someone says no, they mean no. It is not meant to be forced. Now if both partners are sexually aroused, then both will be lubricated and the experience will be a lot more pleasant. What will then happen is at an appropriate time, ejaculation will occur, which will cause the ejection of semen out at the end of the penis into the vagina near the cervix. And in that semen, 1% of that semen will be 300 million sperm. These sperm will make their way towards the ovaries. It's not an exact science. Uh, they don't know, they, they, we're not really certain how they make their way or what causes them to make their way towards the ovaries. But what we do know is that uh, they don't know necessarily what the egg cell is and they may um, butt their head against the side of the 
endometrium in the uterus um, in order to try and find the egg. The experience of of release, the spontaneous release of um, sperm, of semen in that ejaculation is usually accompanied by a pleasant sensation known as an orgasm. Now, female may also have an orgasm or climax, as it can be sometimes known, um, but it's not necessary for fertilization to occur. So what is fertilization? Well, fertilization is when a, an egg and sperm fuse together to form a zygote. And uh, this process where a man ejaculates and the sperm are released into the vagina at the entrance of the uterus is called insemination. And so the sperm, as I said, swim towards the ovaries. And if fertilization does occur, it will occur in the fallopian tube, or known as sometimes, as I said, known as the uterine tube or oviduct. And what will happen is that as the sperm make their way or find the ovum, they will start to try and penetrate the outer edge of the, um, the follicle. And the mature egg is surrounded by a layer of follicle cells known as the corona radiata. And so the sperm has in the top of it what's called acrosome, A-C-R-O-S-O-M-E. And this is an enzyme which is designed to break down the outer layer of cells, this corona radiata, in order to allow the male nuclei to enter, or if you want the pronucleus, to enter the egg. And so a number of sperm make it to the egg, but only one will enter. Now, as soon as a sperm enters into or penetrates through that layer into the egg, then the corona radiata changes in structure and it is now impenetrable. No further egg can break, sorry, no further sperm can break through the outer lining of the ovum. And so now we have a fertilized egg. We've got a female and male pronucleus, if you like. They come together and now we have a diploid cell because the chromosomes will begin to pair up. And so they now have two sets of chromosomes, one from mum, one from dad. And we now have what we call a zygote. The zygote, which is effectively a single cell that results from the fertilization of an egg by a sperm, uh, will begin to go for a process of proliferation. In other words, the cells will begin to multiply several times over and over and over by mitosis. And then as appropriate, some of the uh, genes within those will be switched on or switched off, depending on where those cells are found, and this will result in differentiation. But before that, the we need to know what that cell is called. So that zygote um, reaches 16 or two, become, two cells become four, four become eight, eight become 16, etc. And that cell or that has now become a mass of cells. And by about six days, we have now what we call a blastocyst. And a blastocyst, by definition, is a hollow ball of cells that surrounds a cavity filled with fluid. At one side of the cavity is a group of about 30 cell, uh, cells, and we call that the inner cell mass. Sometimes it's known as the embryoblast. And then the inner cell mass will develop into the embryo. And the cells that compose it are termed stem cells. Now, stem cells are cells that are undifferentiated, but have the potential to become something else, or they can differentiate. Now, we'll come back to stem cells in the next podcast. The blastocyst produces 
human chorionic gonadotrophin. And what this does is it delays the breakdown of the corpus luteum. And by doing so, it means that the secretion of progesterone will continue. Yes, it will be slow secretion, but this what this does, as I said, is progesterone maintains the lining of the uterus. So what it does is it maintains the lining of the uterus while the blastocyst is still developing. And once the uh, placenta has been formed, then the placenta starts to produce progesterone to maintain the lining of the uterus. And by this time, the corpus luteum can degenerate. And so you can see that the uh, when we want to test to see if someone's pregnant, we test for the levels of human chorionic gonadotrophin in their uh, urine, and that will tell you whether someone is pregnant, unless you get a false positive. And in that sense, they've released the HCG, um, but they don't, they don't have a pregnancy there. If the blastocyst is going to continue to develop, then it is highly important that the endometrium is maintained. And so, as I've mentioned before, it is important that levels of progesterone are maintained. And so, whilst uh, the corpus luteum will produce this progesterone, eventually this will be produced, this hormone, along with other hormones, will be produced by the placenta. Now, the blastocyst will develop into uh, various different parts. The inner cell mass will divide and it will form embryonic tissues or embryonic membranes as well as it'll have um, these cells, which the primary germ layers, which will become the fetus or different parts of the fetus. And so when we look at the embryonic membranes, the, you'll get the formation of the chorion and the amnion. The amnion is a fluid filled space or the amnion forms a membrane around the fetus and secretes a fluid called the amniotic fluid. And what this does is it basically acts as a shock absorber. It has three functions, really. It acts as a shock absorber because it uh, absorbs energy. Should the mother walk into something or have a bump, then the energy is absorbed by the amniotic fluid. Secondly, because it's a fluid, it has a specific heat capacity, so it maintains the temperature within the... Uh, so the developing fetus isn't exposed to too much fluctuation in temperature. And thirdly, it allows the developing embryo to move because the position of the fetus has, uh, will change over time. Now, the first two months of pregnancy are referred to as the embryonic period. And after the second month, the developing individual is called a fetus. In the UK, we would spell fetus as F-O-E-T-U-S. In Australia, it's interchangeable. You can spell it as the same way as the UK, or you could spell it the same way as the US, which is um, F. Um, F-E-T-U-S, sorry, I almost forgot there, and that's how you'd spell it. Now, when we look at the primary germ layers, as I've mentioned, there are three of them. There's the um, inner layer, which is known as the endoderm. You've got the middle layer, which is known as the mesoderm, and you've got the outer layer, which is known as the ectoderm. And these three embryonic tissues will differentiate into all the tissues and organs of the developing fetus. So when it becomes a baby, that's what they'll become. Now, there's a whole range of different tissues that they become. And I'll give you some examples, but you probably want to have a look at a few more. And in an exam, you might have to give an example of each type. So, for example, the endo develops into different types of epithelial tissue. The epithelial tissue of the alimentary canal, which is an inner 
organ or the epithelial tissue of the urinary bladder, which again is an inner organ, or the epithelial layer of the pharynx, the auditory canal, the larynx, the trachea, bronchi, and lungs, all of which are internal organs. The mesoderm tends to become things like the skeletal, smooth and cardiac muscle. It becomes the connective tissues such as bone, blood and cartilage, the lymphoid tissue and those kind of things. So it's like the in-between layers in the body. And then you've got the ectoderm, which, as you can imagine, is on the outside. So it becomes things like the epidermis of the skin. It becomes the hair, the nails, the glands of the skin. Um, it becomes things like the lens and the cornea of the eye, for example. But there are others that you'd need to know. Now, I've mentioned the amnion, and I haven't really expanded on the chorion. Now, the chorion is formed from the outer cells of the blastocyst to assist, together with a layer of mesodermal cells. And what it does is the chorion surrounds the embryo and other three embryonic membranes. And as the amnion enlarges, it fuses with the inner layer of the chorion. And eventually this becomes the main part of the fetal portion of the placenta. And so what it does is it forms like a finger-like projection, which push their way into the endometrium. And then the mother um, has a section as well. And the blood of the mother goes in the opposite direction to the blood of the fetus. And so we call it a countercurrent. So if you ever listened to an earlier podcast when I was talking about the kidney, we talked about the loop of Henle, that the descending limb and the ascending limb um, had a countercurrent, which allowed for a greater efficiency for exchange of materials, which we'll come on to when we talk more about the placenta. The placenta is an organ that supplies nutrients to and removes waste from the fetus. It also has a maintenance role because, of course, it's, a cre- yeah, it's an endocrine gland. It secretes hormones that are necessary for maintaining the pregnancy. So we've already talked about progesterone needing to be released to maintain the lining of the uterus. And other hormones would be released at this point. The fetal part of the placenta begins to develop as the blastocyst is implanted into the endometrium. And what we get is these small branching projections from the outer layer of cells which are known as the chorionic villi. And so they're finger-like projections and effectively they provide greater efficiency for exchange of materials because they increase the surface area to volume ratio and they embed themselves into the walls of the endometrium and into um, into the blood spaces. And so we have... Uh, basically, apart from the chorion, which provides a barrier, we have an opportunity to exchange materials without the blood mixing. And so this is important because the mother's, mother's blood and the, father, the fetus's blood needs to be kept separate because if the fetus has received its father's blood type, then it is quite possible that it's a different type from the mother and that would cause a blood clot and that would not be good news for the development of that fetus. Now, there are other roles that the um, placenta has. So glucose and oxygen need to be passed to the baby from the mother. Uh, Waste products such as um, carbon dioxide, urea and other waste need to be transferred from the fetus to the maternal blood to allow for that to be excreted because you don't want harmful accumulation of this metabolic waste to occur in the fetus. And then there are things that are necessary. So the baby will receive... Uh, things like uh, antibodies from its mother, certain hormones from its mother. And so there's a limited amount of protection, which is passive immunity. And so we've mentioned the nutritional function. We've mentioned the 
um, immune function that I've just mentioned there. There's an excretory function, removal of poisonous waste produced or metabolic waste produced by cells. There's a respiratory function, oxygen is taken in, oxygen is carbon dioxide is removed. Now, how does this occur? Well, the fetus is attached to these chorionic villi by, via the umbilical cord. And the umbilical cord is made up of three um, blood vessels. You have two umbilical arteries which carry blood to the capillaries of the chorionic villi and you have a single umbilical vein which carries blood from the placenta through the umbilical cord back to the fetus. And so you need to recognise that the arteries still go away from the fetus and veins go to the fetus because veins go towards the heart, arteries always go away from the heart. So it's key to remember that the cori sorry the umbilical vein is carrying glucose and oxygen to the fetus and the umbilical arteries are carrying waste products away from the fetus which is the opposite from what happens in the adult or in a someone who's been born so over time the blastocyst becomes an embryo and the embryo becomes a fetus. After about one month of growth, the fetus is or the embryo is about just under four millimeters long. During the fifth week, the arms and leg buds start to appear. And by the end of the first two months of embryonic life, the general body form of the infant has developed and the basic plan of the organ systems is in place. During the fourth month, the uterus expands and the woman's abdomen begins to bulge. Fetus grows rapidly during the month to about 18 centimetres long and 100 grams in weight. And we'll talk more about the mothers in this situation in the next pod, or probably two podcasts time. And then by week 20, the end of the fifth month, the fetus is about 25 centimetres long and weighs about 300 grams. Fetal movements such as kicking and turning can now be felt clearly by the mother. And then after 24 weeks of development, the mother has shown obvious signs of pregnancy. The fetus has grown to about 27 to 35 centimetres length and weighs between 565 to 680 grams. And by the end of week 28, it's about 38 centimetres in length and weighs over a thousand grams. Now, clearly this process of growth will continue and by about week 32, the fetus is about 41 to 45 centimetres in length. It weighs about 2000 grams and by week 40, it's reached full term and is ready to be born. And boys tend to be a little bit heavier than girls, but size does vary. And it is dependent also on the size of the parents. Now, if the baby is struggling to get out, and we'll come on to this again later, then what will happen is there may need to be a cesarean section. And so we've talked about the development of the fetus. In order to not make this podcast any longer than it already is, I will talk more about birth, as I said, and probably the impact on the mother in two podcast time. The next one is probably going to be uh, one specifically about stem cells. And so that is the end of this podcast.